complex language, jargon, passive sentences. Dull, impenetrable language is often the consequence of the complex propositions we develop in the financial services industry. When we live it day to day, we tend to think that everyone, including our clients and customers, can understand and indeed get excited about what we write. The reality is that they neither understand it nor get excited by it. My guest today works for a company that is devoted to clarity of communication. They specialise in words. They think words are an untapped opportunity for businesses. Listen to how you can introduce clarity into your communications. When you're good at using words, you're not just better at winning customers or closing deals, you're better at explaining your ideas, sharing your enthusiasm and getting stuff done. That's right here in episode 17 of the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast. Hi, it's Roger Edwards here, and you're listening to the podcast for providers and advisors looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of protection and finance. For each episode, you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF. So let's get on with the show and prepare to be inspired. So let's get started and I'm delighted to introduce you to my guest today and he is Reese Williams. Now I've wanted to get Reese on the podcast since day one because I share his passion and that is his company Quiet Room and that is to communicate with clarity, with no jargon, officious language or passive sentences. I've heard Quiet Room described as word geeks, but they are in fact a communications consultancy that focuses on clarity. And Reese is Quiet Room's strategy director. A little known fact about Reese is that he contributed to a Morrissey album called You Are the Quarry, and it was a one minute flute solo within that album. So welcome, Reese, to the Empath Podcast. Hello. How are you today? Yeah, I'm very, very good, thank you. Very good. How about yourself? Not too bad at all. The weather could be better in Scotland, but I've been saying that for about 25 years, so I guess <laughs> I should know yeah, better. It's, it's, it's unseasonally warm in London. <laughs> it's unseasonally. It's, it's, it's virtually it's tropical here. And seasonally wet and windy up in, in Scotland. Before we get to our main discussion, Reese, and we're going to talk about language today, we're going to talk about clarity, we're going to talk about how the financial services industry continually needs to move away from its stuffiness and its bureaucratic and its passive language. But before we get to that, let's find out a little bit more about you. So tell everyone a little bit about your background so that we can get to know you and find out what makes you tick. I, I've always worked in and around communication. So when I, I it is an English degree, I moved to London. I got a job in media, so I did advertising sales for a while. I, I, I said previously that I think selling advertising is the second worst job in the world, and the, the, the only job worse than that is buying advertising. <laughs> but uh, I did that for about three or four years, and I moved from that into into magazines, just uh, customer magazines. So I worked for an agency called Redwoods, which is, I think, probably still the, the biggest content agency in the world. Um, so I worked there for seven or eight years, and then... 
Um, I had a very idyllic period as a full-time musician for a while, which, during which I earned a platinum disc for playing with Morrissey, and then slowly but surely was uh, drawn drawn back into the corporate world through my work with with Quiet Room. And Quiet Room is a very interesting company. I've uh, worked with you in the past when I was uh, marketing director at Bright Grey, and you you specialise on language and clarity and thinking and development tell us a bit about quiet room so quiet room um we are a team of writers trainers and uh, and strategists we work with sectors that are complicated abstract difficult technical um hard to understand probably even harder to love so protection being one of those and i'm sure we can talk a bit more in a sec about why that is but protection pensions uh, investment, energy, health, it, all, all sectors that are sort of vitally important, it's important to the economy, important to society, important to the to individuals' prosperity and well-being, but that are surrounded by impenetrable language you know that the the way they the way they talk is not the way that people want them to talk you know they struggle to get their points across struggle to make themselves understood so so where we're coming from as a business is we want to help those sectors that are vitally important but hard to understand and hard to love help them be more meaningful to more people so to get their message across to people in a way that people understand in a way that they can remember in a way that they could share with someone else if someone else asked them about them in a way that gets them excited and interested to find out more and that's really going to be the, the main focus of our discussion today, Reese, on that subject of language and complicated language that we do use in the financial services industry. So instead of talking about a product launch or a marketing campaign, which we sometimes do on the podcast, it's all about words today. Why do you think the financial services industry, and, and as you, you said it yourself, it's not just protection, it's pensions and investment. Why have we got ourselves into this situation where the language we use is impenetrable? full of jargon full of passive language and really off-putting to a lot of people i mean i think it's a very complicated a very complicated subject um and i suppose uh, what i've experienced you know through my work is 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 several different kind of interrelated phenomena so i'd say I'd say first and foremost, nobody begins trying to be difficult. You know, no, nobody arrives at work. Nobody sits down at their desk thinking, how can I bamboozle and confuse the consumer? I don't think no one's got that ambition. And if you talk to people in and around protection and financial services in general, they they are aware of the fact that there's a problem and they're, they're trying to trying to solve it. I think one reason is through good intentions, we introduce complexity into the products themselves, which makes them harder to explain. So I was having a chat this morning about about. Uh, critical illness you know critical illness cover you'd love to be able to say this will cover you for any kind of heart attack any kind of cancer any kind of stroke and so on if you do that you make the product incredibly expensive or incredibly unprofitable depending on you know where where, where you where you sit on the spectrum but so what you do by by introducing some definitions that are there to to help the consumer you introduce a level of complexity that makes the product harder to understand and harder and harder to buy and i think the financial services industry is littered with examples of this where in order to make something good we have to make it complicated so i'm working at the moment on a on an absolute return bond fund uh, run by an investment trust in scotland and it is incredibly sophisticated and incredibly clever and incredibly brilliant and it is it has consistently over the years delivered 
positive returns in any market conditions. And, and you think, well, that's fantastic. That sounds brilliant. In order to understand why it's good, you have to have a PhD in, in, in <laughs> bonds and trading, trading bonds. So the problem that they have is that you can't infuse anyone about it because no one understands it. Now, they didn't, they didn't set out to make it hard to explain. They set out to make it amazing. Uh, but, but an unintended consequence of making the product great was making it complicated and therefore, and therefore hard to explain. So that's number, number one thing I think is through good intentions without ever meaning to, we make things more complicated. And by doing that, we make them harder, harder to explain and make, raise the bar for ourselves and, and, and make it more difficult. I think number two, and, and this isn't limited to, to financial services, but it's definitely a problem in financial services. It's quite a closed world where populated by experts. So populated by people who know an awful lot about their subject. And, you know, there's been lots of research done into this, that the more you know about your subject, the harder it becomes for you to talk to someone who knows less than you. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, you spend all day long talking to people who know about protection. You go to protection conferences. You know, you, you talk to your colleagues, you sit in meetings, and all you talk about all day is protection. As a result, you assume that everyone has the same level of knowledge that, that you do. And, and even if you even if you know rationally that they that they don't, it becomes incredibly hard to think like someone who knows less than you. And therefore, you begin to make a few, uh, to hit upon a few obstacles that prevent you getting through to someone. So, for instance, you might find yourself missing out really important bits of detail because you assume that the other person knows it and you miss out something then that means that they can't understand what you're saying. The opposite is also true. So if you you find yourself assuming that the other person cares as much as you do about deferred periods or incapacity definitions you know and you think well because i'm excited by the detail they must be excited by the detail as well and and you know and and unfortunately and i hate to break this to the to the listeners of your of your podcast most people aren't as excited as we are about it's actually quite sad that sitting here having been excited about deferred periods and definitions in the past that it really is actually quite sad to admit that isn't it well it is it is yeah (laughs) it is but we assume just because this is fascinating to us that that it's fascinating to the other people and it, and it just isn't. And I, I think to, to give you an, to give you an indicator of the the gulf that exists in understanding, you know, between the experts within the industry and the people outside the bubble. I sat in a when a GS Protect launched as Fortis Life as it was then. I sat in a in a research group. I heard a guy say, "Oh, critical illness cover. I don't need that. I'll just buy it if I get cancer." <laughs> and, and I think well, that, that's 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 what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. And and I, I think it's very easy to to forget how little people know and to to fall sort of either side of the either side of that kind of spectrum that I was telling you about. You know, whether it's saying too little because we assume they know more they do more than they do, or or saying too much because we assume they care as much as we do. And it, we just get used to doing it because we're always talking to ourselves. And I think it's particularly a problem in an intermediated world where really the most of the con- client contact we have is through an, through an advisor or through an intermediary or through an, another organization. And you begin to imagine that they're your customers, not the, not the end, not the end customers. So, so there's, there's those kinds of reasons. I think also on a fundamental level that, that um, people find themselves in big businesses writing stuff 
and they never ch- chose that as a career. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 they find themselves writing stuff. I mean, I, it, it was it was amusing. I was talking to a to an insurer recently, and we said, "Well, who who writes your stuff?" And they said, "Oh, the act, the actuaries write write the stuff." And I said, "Oh, okay. Who who reviews the stuff?" They went, "Other actuaries." Other actuaries. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I, I have I have nothing but admiration and respect for for the enormous intellect of actuaries. But this is this is not their gig. You know, in the same way, they don't they don't get get me to check their spreadsheets. Uh, God forbid. That they, that they ever should, but or, or their financial modelling, or, or or whatever. But it, it, it's you. People find themselves in roles where they where communication is the number one skill they need to have, and that's not a career that they chose. They haven't had any support or any training, and they may not even have any enthusiasm for it, or even dare I say it, not wanting to be too critical, but even any aptitude for it. And so, as a result of all of these interrelated factors, we find ourselves communicating in a way that makes no sense to people and if you think about it you know think about it commercially you want to have the widest possible appeal you know i mean how many meetings have we sat in where we, where we say how are we going to get people saving for for their retirement or you know how are we going to close the 80 bazillion pound protection gap and commercially we've got to solve this problem because ultimately we won't get people excited people won't want to buy our products unless they can understand them unless they get them they it gets them excited unless they can find a way to relate it to their, to themselves and to find some sort of purpose for it in their lives. And a few things occur to me just listening to you talk through this. Yeah, rant, mm-hmm. not talk. <laughs> rant is a great, I mean, I, I love a good rant as well. I'm yeah, a, me too. I'm a passionate ranter and language is one of the things I often rant about. Now, on the one hand, what you've said, and I agree with you, is that we've made products across the whole financial services industry more complicated in order to get a competitive advantage over our competitors obviously yeah that complexity of product has led to complexity of language so on the one hand that implies that one way of solving that is to make the products themselves less complicated so we yes. haven't got as much to explain but i don't see that happening actually and, and i think there's a, there's a it's a perennial hot topic isn't it the, mm. the, the idea of uh, simple simple products and and um i don't know that it's the right answer because i i, I think that that actually as i said the reason the products are complicated is 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 because that's the way to make them good, and and I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that simple products are bad, and and there, there will be customer groups for whom they'll be absolutely right, but they're not going to be right for everyone. To to my mind, I, mean, I think we can get a bit too hung up on simplicity. And someone said to me once, the truth resists simplicity, and I think we can actually in our quest for simplicity we can find ourselves really confusing people even even more because as i as i say we're trying to take too many bits out of the story and we end up with something that doesn't mean very much this is why you know you mentioned clarity earlier it's why i think we're much more concerned with with clarity than simplicity because i believe you can make any subject no matter how dry or technical or complicated you can make it clear but you can't always make it simple one of my favorite jobs ever at choir room was auditing the uh, communication for the treasury so in between the last government and this one the treasury wanted to uh, audit the way it communicated really to sort of get itself together for what they assumed at the time would be new uh, you know a new group of ministers and it was a fan- fascinating job because i got to go through the budget with a red pen unfortunately i couldn't change any policies but i i, I could change some words i've read memos between cabinet ministers about the widening of the a1 in doncaster and, and all of this kind of stuff. One of the things I read was a report by an economist on something called the, Hod- the uh, Hodrick Prescott filter. Wow. This is something, yep, 
I, I, I couldn't tell you what it, I mean, I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. It, and it's something to do with the input output gap, which I also don't understand. But uh, the, the, the point is I read it and I knew that it was perfectly clear because I understood, you know, I understood every word. I understood the structure of the argument. It's an incredibly complicated concept. But the, but the point is I knew it was clear. So, so I, I think that whilst yes, it, that one answer would be to make the, to make the products simpler in the event that we can't do that every time and that it may not be in the consumer's interest to do it because those complexities often there for a reason then the other the other way of doing it is saying we accept some level of complexity because we know that it's part and parcel of what we do but what we don't ever accept is that you don't have to make your communication complex just because your product is that i think you should be able to interpret your expertise for someone who knows less than you and cares less than you you should be able to tell your story no matter how involved and complicated it is and through a set of simple tools and techniques to repackage and reframe and represent that story in a way that people go all right now i get because i've seen it done i've seen it done in investments i've seen it done in pensions and in protection and i think you, you you've you've summed up again what i'm thinking there I appreciate why there is such a clamour for simple products, but I think you've articulated the need for clarity. And, and let's face it, as you've said, there are some very good, complicated products out there. I think yes. one of your clients is Prue Protect. I had uh, Phil Jeans from Prue Protect on the podcast a few weeks ago. The Serious Illness Plan is an incredibly good product. But it is complicated. I think the, the policy is about 98 pages long. Yeah. So I guess the thing is, how do we start to take something like a 98-page policy document? And, and on the one hand, you've got the more technical stuff like the policies. On the other side of the coin, you've got the more customer-facing advertising, collateral and marketing material. How do we start to make this stuff clearer for the consumer well i mean i, I think let, let's use the example you just you just raised then and i think i think pro protect i mean I, I i would say this but i i think that they're actually very good at, at at doing doing exactly that because yes if you want to get into all of the detail then yes you can read the 98 pages and yes it is complicated but equally you can understand the basic principles or the, the gist if you like of what that product is there to is there to achieve so it recognizes that illnesses don't have to be critical to have a serious impact on your life and that there is a wider range of conditions which can affect your life which are not covered by most traditional critical illness policies and that actually the, the requirements of severity of most critical illness policies are not what consumers think they are you know that we think actually oh I've got cancer I should I should get a payout but people tell you your cancer is not advanced enough yet or you've had the wrong sort of heart attack you know that kind of thing so if you understand that illnesses don't have to be critical to have a big impact on your life and actually there are loads of serious illnesses that can affect your life that it's better to have some cover for than none if you understand that the payment should be roughly proportionate to the impact that that condition or the severity of that condition has on on, on your on your life then you basically understand everything you need to know about pre protect serious illness cover everything else then becomes detail and i think the risk the risk is that we think we have to give all of the detail at the first sitting that in order to understand this product you have to have 98 pages if you don't you, you have to have two minutes and an explanation like the one i like the one i just gave you but in terms of how to make things clearer you boil down to some pretty simple and 
basic principles. You have to use words people understand, you know, on a very basic level. Don't use words they don't know the meaning of. If you have to use a word because it's a, a technical word with a very specific meaning, then use it and define it straight away. Then once you've, you've covered that sort of base level, then it's a lot about structure. So it's a lot about the order that you choose to put things in in your, in your documents. Like what level of detail do I give at what part of the story? How much detail, detail do I give at each stage and so on? It's also about the order that you put things in in a sentence. So you talked about passive passive sentences earlier. You know, passive sentences are sentences where the natural order of things in our mind is reversed. So, so if you think about the way the way we learn to interact in the world is that we do something and something happens. So you know, you ask you ask a child of three or four. You know, you hear, hear a smash in the next room. You run in. There's a broken goldfish bowl and a little goldfish flapping on the carpet helplessly, breathing his last uh, on the carpet. You know, what's happened here? And the child will say, I broke the goldfish bowl. Same child, two or three years later, now he's learnt the, uh, the, the concept of blame and repercussions consequences the naughty step will say the goldfish bowl got broke the same that's the that's the that's the passive voice so that is the sentence is now about the goldfish bowl it is has been broken by an unknown agent so you know bigger boys the fairies you know who, who my my little brother this all, all whoever whoever it is but not me so it's the same reason that politicians stand up in the house of commons and apologize for mistakes that have been made and don't don't attach anyone making those mistakes to that sentence um it's the same reason why it makes one of my favorite quotes uh, andrew lansley the form, former health secretary when people said you know your your um, nhs reforms are are not very popular he said it's a shame that the benefits of of the policy haven't communicated themselves and i and i kind of think you're probably unfit for office if you think they're <laughs> ever going to <laughs> you know <laughs> as far as i'm aware no benefits have ever communicated themselves the check was sent out by the claims department instead of the claims department sent out the check. Sounds yes. so much better. And what's um, what's really interesting is that you often find that that's um, it, that if we're blaming the customer, we use the active voice, and if we're trying to get off blame ourselves, we use the passive voice. So because you filled in the form incorrectly, a new one has been issued. We we don't like it when applied to ourselves. We like it when applied to uh, applied to you when you've done something wrong. Um, and it's funny because it's it's we first learn it when we're trying to evade responsibility. It. I don't think that's why people use it consciously when they use it in a, in a business context. People do it because they've seen other people do it. You know, there's no memo that goes out um, at, the, at the beginning of everyone's career saying the passive voice must always be used. They're far from it. In fact, in fact, every star guide ever written will tell you not to use it. But because that's what we see our boss doing and that's what we see the rest of the business doing, it becomes our default way of communicating. Now, what lots of people don't know, I mean, but, you know, why is, that, why is that even a problem? Well, it's a problem because it's harder to understand. Uh, now, it takes 14 times longer for the brain to process a sentence in the passive voice as it does in the active voice. 14 times? 14 times longer. Now, now that's probably a split second or 14 split seconds. But, but imagine the sort of cumulative impact of that across a document where it might be used three or four times in one sentence. It might, you know, might be used 40 to 150 times over, over two or three pages. And each of those, each of those sentences is harder to understand than it, than it needs to be. And so simply the structure of your sentences, the order that you put things in within, within your documents, right down to the, the, the bare bones of the words, the words you use and how you choose to frame those concepts. All of those things, tiny, tiny changes can have a massive impact on results, a, ma- a massive impact. Now there's, a few tiers, a 
few extra gears to reach for once you've done that. And I think sometimes this is where I kind of fall out of love with things like plain English. Because, I mean, imagine, is there anything else in your life that you like that you describe as being plain? Plain, yeah. You know, so, so it, it's, you know, and I think you rather, you rather miss the point of the, the beautiful richness and complexity of the English language if you always want to boil it down to something plain, which is why I think, you know, above, above clear. I mean, clarity's got to be the absolute base level because if people don't understand it, then you can't do anything else, you know, because simply they're just going to be turned off and you're going to lose them. But above, above clear is how do you make this thing vivid? So how, how mm-hmm. do you make it interesting, engaging, fascinating, intriguing? How do you give it personality? And this is where, this is where I get particularly interested in because I'm really interested by stories, the impact that telling stories can have and what, you know, why they're particularly memorable, why they're cognitively the way we're hardwired to receive information as a species. Uh, metaphor that we use six metaphors a minute, but we don't often do it consciously. And if you can achieve mastery of it, then you can really begin to excite, engage and influence people. It's about often sometimes about how you frame things. And a good, good example from um, from the pensions world is um, do, would you be happy signing up for uh, something that said a pension is a way to save or something that said a pension is a way to get more money when you retire. See, both of those both of those things are true, but one is focused on what you give up and the other is focused on what you get. Indeed, and I really subscribe to the idea of stories. Stories is a subject that's come up on the Empath podcast a lot, mm-hmm. and, it, and I, th- I, I feel like a bit of a storyteller over the years with my involvement within critical illness. Some of the best presentations that I've ever done is when I've told stories about people whose lives have been affected by what we do, i.e. when we've paid claims. So yeah. it's not just saying we handed over this cheque to Joe Bloggs whose wife had cancer. It's the genuine emotional feeling about what happened to that family and the fact yeah. that you rescued them from the brink of financial disaster. And, you know, the, there's a, the story can create a real empathy. But one of the problems that we do have, and you alluded to it before, Reese, is that, you know, oh, I have to write like this because my boss writes like this. And, and when we do have large companies and so many people seem to be involved in the creative process, either from a checking point of view or a sign-off point of view, you might even get a great piece of writing at the start, not perhaps written by an actor, as you pointed out, but actually <laughs> genuinely written by a good marketeer who knows what they're doing and can write simply. But by the time the compliance person's looked at it, by the time the actuaries have looked at it, then the customer service people want to make sure it fits in with their processes and the underwriters want to make sure that their language doesn't contradict anything. That original piece of great copy that the marketeer put together might bear no resemblance to what ends up going out. Yeah, and this is known in my, my industry as the reverse washing. <laughs> you know, the, we, we went into this meeting and made it worse. Mm. I mean, I think, I think we can, um, it can be too easy to, to, to paint our, our colleagues as the bad guys. You know, oh, you know, it would have been great if compliance had let me, blah, blah, blah. But actually, you've got to remember, we are all ultimately on the same side. No one has an interest in not selling the product, purely and simply. Some, where the conflict comes is, is where there is a potential conflict of interest between our desire to help the consumer and our desire to protect the business. And if you, if you believe that those, 
that's actually one and the same aim, that it's by helping the consumer we will protect the business, then lots of the problems go away. And if you're really focused around the consumer and what the consumer was likely to understand, how is the consumer likely to read or interpret this, then you'll find that the people writing the communication and the people reviewing it are ne- now have a shared agenda. But I think if you if you, if it becomes a them and us thing, you know, we want to sell it, they want to warn people so much that no one wants to buy it, then I think that's quite unhelpful and not and not really the way we should be doing it and and it, when i think about the the relationships we try and encourage and you know the ones that we enjoy with the clients we work with that we're all in the room together trying to make it better and we've all got the same aim which is to make it clear to the consumer to make it exciting and ultimately to get people to buy it because that's that's why we're all in business normally when you have a chat with anybody in any part of the business whether it's any of those areas that i mentioned before everybody wants to succeed of course they do yeah it's just that sometimes somebody hasn't articulated how to overcome the potential conflicts in allowing each of the component parts to allow allow yes yeah and and i think i think also the process doesn't always doesn't always support it so so for instance here's here's a here's a thing so we we all know that every document we ever produce is signed off by about nine million people and if if we for instance sit at our desk and email it out to seven or eight people we get their comments and then someone centrally tries to interpret what everyone means and tries to put it all in and they've all done track changes and so you think okay well compliance that i have to say that and they, that means that i have to say it word for word exactly what they've said and quite often people they don't spend a great deal of time re- reviewing things they're doing it very quickly they're doing it in between one vital meeting and another vital meeting and they they what they really mean is something a bit like this they don't mean exactly this and i think if the process works like that where it's kind of past the parcel you know that, that you're just sending stuff out getting comments back and trying to make sense of it at the end then you do end up with these terrible you know frankenstein documents where you can see eight different hands in it and you know that it's not very clear as a result which what we try and do is to get people around a table like say if you sit down you say we're all here to help the consumer and by helping the consumer we will protect the business and we have an agenda to make it clear for the consumer then we are all collaborating towards one goal and ultimately we sit down around a table and we discuss it and and there's a lot of give and take in that process now it's a greater time commitment for people but a better result and i think you know a better result creatively but also a better result commercially because it's something that's going to be easy to understand easy to get excited by and something that's going to sell the product and everybody feels happier because everybody's been involved in the process. Yeah, yeah. It's not just like chucking the proverbial grenade over the fence and, and, and hoping, you know, the outcome is what you want it to be. When, in fact, the, the outcome is normally a, a, an awful bang and loads of rubble. You know, when, when in fact, if, if we're all going to sit down and talk about it and knowing that we're all trying to go in the same direction, then you do... you get to a better result for sure we've been talking for quite a while recently and to be honest this subject fascinates me so much we could kind of probably carry on talking for the rest of the afternoon yes <laughs> what's the one big idea that you would like listeners of the empath podcast to take away from this conversation that we've had today i i think it's this always assume intelligence never assume knowledge so we are not talking to people who are stupid we're talking to people who generally speaking, are cleverer than we give them credit for, but they don't know what we know. And if we talk to them as we talk to each other, then we will never engage them. Whereas if we put our, all our efforts into understanding that person, what makes them tick, what they know, what they need to know, how they feel, how we want them to feel, if we begin there and build, build from that we will get the commercial results that we want to get. But if we, if we do the opposite, you know, we, we, we assume people know everything or we treat them like they're thick, 
we won't get that. We won't get that result because no one likes to be talked down to and, and equally no one likes to be blinded with science. And that combined with a collaborative approach at producing material and producing whether it's technical material or marketing material should make everybody face in the right direction and yeah, create yeah, a exactly. result that works for the business. Exactly. And I mean, uh, to, to give you, just to give you a few examples, we changed the way a provider described an annuity product. Uh, so back back when back when that was a thing, the uh, and the sales tripled. You know, we we changed the way a, a pension scheme communicated, and the the rate of people joining the scheme went up by seventeen times. So a seventeen fold uplift. Now that's only by changing the words. And you see, I think you know quite often we think we have to the the the, the scale of the change needs to match the scale of the problem. When in fact, actually, there's, there's often a very small solution to to most of our enormous problems. And I believe, and I mean, I've seen it happen time and time again, that if you really, really focus on the words you use and try and make them the very best words you can, then you will reap the commercial rewards at the end of it. So I was at a conference last week and one of my colleagues from RGA, um, Jonathan Hughes, came up with three little questions that made me again realise that we use language every day in the protection industry that is a, it's a little bit daft. So his three questions were, doesn't premium mean expensive? <laughs> isn't policy something governments do and isn't protection something i need if i'm sleeping around <laughs> and again in each of those three questions he uses a word which we use in the industry day in day out and yet the meaning of those words to us is totally different than the meaning of those words to the consumer yes reese thank you so much for coming on the empath podcast today at the end of the podcast, I always like to finish with a quick fire round of quick business pe- questions. Are you happy to stay on for just a few more minutes to do that? Yes, no problem at all. Good. If there was one thing about the financial services industry that you could change by waving a magic wand, what would it be? Oh, I mean, it, that's, that's easy, the way it talks. What's the one business model, product or campaign that's caught your attention in the last year, even if it was from a competitor? Tell us what it was and what you liked about it. Um, I, I, my my uh, example is actually outside the protection industry. I talked that's about fine. It when, I, when I gave uh, a talk at the protection review uh, event uh, a few months ago. Um, it's the latest Apple campaign where they talk. They talk about um, it's how people use the use the iPhone to track their health, how they use it to uh, tune their guitars, how they use it to work the lights at a concert, and and, and so on. And it's, it says um, the the strap line is "You're more powerful than you think." And I think what's fascinating about that is I think think what I think is interesting for the protection industry is that we think our job is here to talk about our products. But it's not. It's to talk about our customers. And what that does, it's not even about the iPad or the iPhone. It's about it's about you and about how it makes you feel and what it helps you do. And I think that that's that's so powerful that there has to be something we can learn from it. A strong lesson there. Tell us about an app or a gadget that's made a huge difference to your life and or your business. Uh, well, um, I, I can tell you it, it's uh, definitely made a huge impact on my life. So we, we mentioned Pruprotect earlier. I have just bought life cover and serious illness cover from, from Pruprotect. Uh, as part of the relationship, I get to participate in the, in the vitality scheme and I have on my wrist a Fitbug orb. Uh, other, other wearable tech is, is available. And what it allows me to do is to track my steps every day and I've become obsessed 
we're thinking, oh, that'd be about a thousand steps if I went to that sandwich shop instead of <laughs> instead of that one. And I, 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 it has genuinely, in just the way that you hope it would, nudged me to be more active and to in just to be more so to move around a lot more in my in my daily life. And I found in my in my first week of wearing it, I'd lost four kilos, I think, and I just sort of nicely lo- losing a little bit of weight every week. And it's just got me focused on my own health. So so I think it's I think it's brilliant, and I I think if anything, Pro Protect and Pro Health are under selling it because it's it's already three or four weeks in i think it's absolutely brilliant and finally what's the best business book you've ever read that's like asking me which is my which of my children is the favorite or <laughs> what's my favorite pop song a book i think is well I, can i give two is that of all course right? you can one of them isn't a business business book at all but it's got so many brilliant insights in it for business that i feel i'd i'd recommend everyone to to read it one is a book called made to stick by two brothers called chip and dan heath and one is a, a lecturer at business school and the other one is a, is a is a marketer and what they're really interested in is what makes ideas stick and you know two-thirds of the book you'll know you you'll in, either intuitively know or someone else will have will have told you there's one third in it that's pure magic just just full of gold dust what's fantastic even about the stuff you know is that it's packed full of great examples and those examples are unsurprisingly designed to make those ideas stick so that's a very that's a very very good book the other one i'd say which isn't a business book but w- which i think is an essential read for anyone who's trying to understand how to persuade people understand how people make decisions is Daniel Kahneman's book Thinking Fast and Slow which is Nobel Nobel Prize winning life's work into psychology and behavioural economics packaged into a book that's just a fantastic read and full of amazing ideas thanks for that Reese. and as always I will put the links to those books and to any other links of um, companies and uh, people that we've discussed today up in the show notes for this podcast and you can find that at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath Reese, thank you so much for coming on the pleasure. podcast before you go I'm hoping that a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to get in touch with you and get in touch with Quiet Room to see how you can help them so before you go just tell everyone how they can connect with you whether it's on Twitter, LinkedIn, Google Plus and of course your website Good, I thought you were going to ask me to give out my phone number on air then. But <laughs> you can do that as well if you want. No, do you know what? I'm going to pass on that one. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at uh, twitter.com, obviously, uh, forward slash Williams 2 And Reese is spelled the Welsh way, R-H-Y-S, Williams, and 2 is the number 2. People uh, can find me on LinkedIn if they search for Reese Williams or, or, for, or for Quiet Room. The other place to, to find, find out more about me and more about Quiet Room is, is the Quiet Room website, which is www.quietroom.co. UK and, and anything uh, you want to read about us you'll find on there you'll also find which is I'm hugely proud of is our library we decided when when we set the company up we were going to share as many of our ideas as we possibly could so we've got a we've got a library if you with loads of the books that we've stolen our best ideas from um, and if you want to borrow them, you can literally apply online and we will send you a copy of the book. And all you have to do is, is, is send it back. And actually, even if you don't, we'll just buy another one. So, yeah, no, we're, we're very proud. Please check it out. www.quietroom.co.uk and, and uh, borrow a book if you're interested. Thank you, Reese. So you're much for talking to me today. Let me wish you every success in the future. And I hope to catch up with you again, maybe at the next Protection Review Conference. Look forward to it. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast, also known as the Empath Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath 
for links to the apps and books and topics we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a comment. If you are a provider, advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model that you want to talk about, do please get in touch. I'd be delighted to have you as a guest on the Empath Podcast. And before we go, just to remind you that nothing that my guests and I talked about on the show is intended to be financial advice of any kind. It's just our thoughts and opinions. Okay? Okay.